Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Antioch kids, before you're dismissed, um, I just want to share a couple things. One, it was so exciting to have the kickoff for our uh, season of using the soccer pitch in the back. So for those of you who served yesterday, thank you so much for your hard work. Let's give it up. It was a gorgeous day. Thanks be to God for that. And there were many of our neighbors who came, and they were from all over the world, and that's what it's about. Listen, y'all, it's not, doing things like that is not ultimately to get people into this space on a Sunday morning. It's to get you, with the gospel that you bear, out there, among them proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And so I just want to take a moment. Um, Who did you meet yesterday that was from another country? Just call out the country. Canada, Congo, Honduras, Burma, Morocco, all over the world, brought right here into our backyard. Thanks be to God for an opportunity to declare his good news to the nations and to be the church that we were meant to be when we were planted here in this particular unique context. Well, at this time, Antioch kids, you may be dismissed to go to your classes. Teachers, we say to you, you are sent. Young disciples who are left in the room, there are sermon guides over here on this table for you to utilize. I would encourage you to grab one and follow along, and I'll be pointing out particular parts of the sermon that will help you find your answers. Well, today we're beginning our summer sermon series in Genesis, and this has been a four-year journey for us. So I suppose by the end of this summer, we will have graduated with a degree in Genesis, right? I know I will. So check this out. Summer of 2019, we walked through Genesis 1 through 11 in a series called Creating Culture. And then in fall of 2020, we walked through chapters 12 through 25 in a series we called Blessed to Be a Blessing. And then last summer, 2021, we walked through chapters 25 to 36 in a series called Learning to Limp. And now we arrive this summer at Genesis 37 to 50 in a series that we are titling Worst Thing, Best Thing. So young disciples, there's your first answer. The name of this sermon series is Worst Thing, Best Thing. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 36. Young disciples, also, that is another answer on your sheet. That's today passage. You can find that passage on page 31 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So here's a little bit about today's sermon. The focus of the sermon is the dreamer. And there will be two applications for you. One, dream God's dreams. And second, suffer God's sufferings. Since today's passage is so long, rather than standing to read it all at once, I'm going to be reading it verse by verse as we go along. But let us now posture our hearts in such a way that we can say in regard to God's word, the Lord has spoken to us, and respond together, thanks be to God. Let me pray. God, as we arrive at Genesis once again, I pray that you would surprise us with the riches of your matchless word. 
And that you would fill your people with a hunger to go and feast on it every day. And I pray, Lord, for those in this room who need to hear this word. Those you have brought to mind and heart this week. And I pray for those in this room who need to hear this word and don't know they need to hear it. And I pray for those in this room who may not need this word right now, but will need it in the near future. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who here has began pursuing a dream in a way that was really innocent and idealistic and naive, only to soon, whoom, get a swift kick in the pants? Anybody? Anybody besides me? I'll be by myself up here today. Join me, okay? I know there are many stories in the room I have thought about many of you this week. And so when I think about this, for me, I go back to the day as a 17-year-old young man that I went to my pastor and I told him, there's nothing else I could do with my life and still be happy besides serving Jesus in full-time ministry. Now, this former West Virginia state trooper turned pastor replied to me in his good old Appalachian accent, well, praise the Lord. And I hope you have thick skin. Now, I took his words to heart, but in my naivety, I really had no idea what he was talking about. And it wouldn't be but then just a few months later that I was sitting in my youth minister's office, crying like that gif of the guy in the shower biting his washcloth. I know you send it to each other, just sobbing, <laughs> like that, okay? That was me just a few months later in my youth minister's office, crying and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. See, my big dream of winning the masses had already taken a whoom, swift kick in the pants. Now, I think it's right for all of us to seek God's dreams for our lives and that the idealism that we begin with is a large part of what he uses to propel us into them. Y'all, if we knew all that lay ahead in pursuing his dreams, like none of us would go for it. But no worthy aspiration for God can ever be pursued apart from being thrown into some pits, coming to the end of yourself, taking the kind of kicks in the pants that make you wonder, like, God, are you still even in this at all? Like, what did I do to make you mad? And I would remind you, though, this is exactly what we see playing out in Genesis. So since this is the beginning of our sermon series, let me do a little bit of review to catch us up on this book. In the beginning, God created his world with his dream for that world. It was dwelling with his beloved children who would be fruitful and multiply and then fill the world with his glory. However, before even taking the first step in that process, they were deceived by the serpent, that is Satan, and replaced God's dream with their own dream. And that meant they could no longer dwell with God and immediately began to fill his world with evil. Now, over the course of this sermon, I'm going to say two words that are very important. And I would invite you to respond to me because in our context, we don't know how to interact as I preach and you listen. 
Okay? So let me give you some responses that you might choose to use. You pick the one you like, and then you can use it throughout the sermon. One, amen. That's a good one. Appreciate that one. Another one, all right. Okay. Yes. Yes, sir. Well. Well, well. Preach. Say that. Mmm. Mmm. You pick the one you like. I don't care what it is. You can be creative and do a different one. But I want you to respond or at least try to. Here are the two words. I'm going to start right here. They could no longer dwell with God and immediately began to fill his world with evil. Here are the two words. But God. This is why I'm helping you. Okay? We're going to have plenty of practice though, so stay tuned in. God not only had mercy on them, he told them that a hero would eventually come who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. The dream would be restored. Oh, that's bonus points if you say it when I don't say the special two words. We're getting somewhere. Well, 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 well. All right, I like this. It's like driving up, you know, going from the clunker truck that I used to drive to being in a V8 or something. It was nice. Hey. The dream would be restored. Evil would be removed. However, he also says that the hero's heel would be wounded by the serpent. The dream would be realized through suffering. So the people are constantly looking for this hero. Wouldn't you be? Is it able? No, whom ends up killed by his brother Cain? Is it Noah? No, whom ends up drunk, naked, and ashamed? Is it Babel? No, whom ends up dispersed and abandoned? But God, he not only had mercy on them, he chose a man named Abram through whom he would create a family that would fill the world with God's glory. There's the dream. So Abraham, the promised hero? No. Whom pretends his wife is his sister in order to protect himself? Twice. So is Abraham's son Isaac the promised hero? No. Whom does the same thing as his father and plays favorites with his sons? So is Isaac's son, Jacob, the promised hero. No, he's a deceiver who has to be maimed for life in order to finally commit to God's dream. Listen, if you're looking for a dream come true in Genesis, like you're going to be disappointed and probably really confused. The closest that you get is Jacob's son, Joseph. From the very beginning of his narrative, Boom! He's thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. That means Genesis ruthlessly leaves us without any hope of a hero. But God, he's the hero. And the way he proves it is by taking the very worst things 
and making them the very best things. Therefore, in him and in him alone, we can have hope to once again do this. Dream God's dreams. This starts to come out beginning in verse 1, if you'd look at it with me. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons. This being God's chosen family, the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. And from the beginning of his story in Genesis, like we see a couple of things escalating. So one, Joseph's goodness and his brother's wickedness. And two, as those escalate, so does the brother's hatred of Joseph. And it starts with Joseph reporting to his father the evil deeds of four of his brothers. Now, those of you who have siblings, especially brothers, you know no one likes a tattletale or a goody-two-shoe. And Joseph progressively does things that naturally alienate himself from his family. So, people often take that one of two ways are happening here. Either Joseph was completely blameless or he was being a little snot and deserved everything that he got. But I think that we can land somewhere in the middle by saying that Joseph is presented in the text as the one faithful and virtuous son. Look, he does what his father tells him to do. And according to Leviticus 5.1, he takes the witness stand rather than hiding his brother's sin. But at the same time, he's also young and naive in the way that he goes about things. Like any child of God, he's a mixed bag who's got a lot of growing up to do. Ironically, just like his father. Verse 3. Now Israel... Loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is like, come on, Jacob. Like, you of all people ought to know how favoritism damages a family. What he does here really serves to escalate the hatred toward Joseph probably more than anything else in the passage. See, Jacob loves him and he displays it provocatively by giving Joseph a special robe. And this robe is likely the kind of garment referred to in 2 Samuel 13, 18 that's meant to express royalty. It's a, it's a sleeved coat that reaches to the wrists and to the ankles, and thus then communicates that he, Joseph, the second to youngest brother, was to receive the birthright. That is the leadership of the family and a double portion of the inheritance. Like, Jacob, what are you doing? Why would you just put that out there in front of everybody? Do you not know what brothers will do in the face of this kind of provocation? But it gets worse. Verse 5, 
Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Kiddos, you need this for your sheet? This is the first dream. Behold, or look, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, look, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, look, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Oh, so you are indeed to reign over us? Or you are indeed to rule, have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, dreams in the ancient world were considered to be of divine origin. And these dreams are clearly from the Lord. They are revealing how he is choosing to work salvation for his people through Joseph. And the fact that Joseph is dreaming God's dreams and his brothers are not is enough to make them hate him. That's more than enough. The young and naive step of the dreamer, however, was reporting them in ways that only provoked the hatred. And I think there is wisdom here in seeing that the world will already hate God's choice and God's dreams. And so, there's no need for his children to provoke the hatred. Like, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, Jesus says. Carry this chosenness in a way that cultivates in you the boldness to speak with an ever-deepening humility and winsomeness. Be hated for speaking the truth, not speaking the truth like a provocateur. That's the wisdom we're gleaning here. Otherwise, it gets worse. Like verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Kiddos, here's the second dream you need for your sheep. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So this time the dreamer not only provokes his brothers, but also his father. And notice that the dream doesn't just reveal the exaltation of Joseph, but also the honored position of the sun, moon, and eleven stars. That's referring to Joseph's father and mother and eleven brothers. So they they will all shine as lights in the world. They are all chosen and yet given different purposes. They all will be part of God's good, pleasing, and perfect dream. And yet that point is missed on them because of their focus on the supremacy of Joseph. Anybody here today besides me who sometimes misses out on God's dream for your life because you are looking at his dream for someone else's life. Yeah, we do that. And so the escalation is complete. Now God's choice of Joseph and Joseph's immature response to that choice has not only alienated him first 
from his four brothers, and then not only from all 11 brothers, but now even somewhat from his father. Though we do see that Jacob at least seems to be pondering what God might be doing. So what are we to learn from all this? Well, here's the primary application that I want to make. Dream God's dreams. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Bible teaches that you are a chosen and favorited and beloved child of God. Not because you are the most deserving, but ultimately because of his gracious choice. And in the midst of an unfaithful and evil world, the perfect faithfulness and goodness of Christ has been freely credited to your account when you trusted in him. You have been clothed in the royal robe of his righteousness, and he's not ashamed to put it on display. You are now a character in the story of God through whom his dream can be realized in the world again. So, dream his dreams. Aspire to fill his world with his glory. Desire to live a godly life. Do you know what a godly life is? Let me describe it this way on the basis of how I understand the Bible using the phrase godly life. It's living on offense instead of on defense. Okay? You with me? I know not everybody's into sports here, but you, you know enough to get the principle. You ever watched a sports game where a team knows they're not that great against the other superior team, and so what they do is play on the defensive. They try to hold the ball to themselves and just hope that maybe they can kick one goal or score one basket that will get them the win at the very end. It's so boring to watch those games, isn't it? Well, that's what we do when we don't seek to live a godly life. We're living on the defense. Instead of on the offense, listen. Desire to live a godly life in the way that you leverage a godly singleness. Desire to live a godly life in the way that you pursue godly relationships. In the way that you build a godly marriage. In the way that you raise godly children. In the way that you choose a godly vocation. In the way that you commit as a godly church member in the way that you use your gifts and resources for godly ends, in the way that you seek a godly kingdom instead of your own kingdom, in the way that you seek to leave a godly legacy at the end of your life. Go for it, man. Jesus is worthy of everything. Young disciples, that's the line that you need to fill in. Jesus is worthy of what? Everything. Don't live on the defensive. Man, live on the offensive. Go for it. God is for you, not against you. And so seek to live a godly life. Dream God's dreams. It's our first application. And the second one builds on that. If you're going to dream God's dreams, then you're going to suffer God's sufferings. The story continues in verse 12, if you'd look there with me. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, 
Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So the sense that we get here is that Joseph is being sent on a mission by his father. And yet that's ominous for a couple of reasons. One, Joseph's brothers hate him and can't even speak peaceably to him. Listen, man, tick off 11 brothers and see what happens when they catch you alone with nobody watching. And two, the brothers are supposed to be at Shechem, a place where bad things tend to happen. Let me refresh your memory. Shechem is where Jacob lingered when he should have been in the promised land. And then where his daughter Dinah was defiled. And then where his sons Simeon and Levi slaughtered all the men and took all the women and children. It's not a good place. But look at how Joseph responds. Here I am. See that? It's the same phrase that we hear from other faithful Old Testament characters. Remember the prophet Isaiah. He sees a vision of the Lord. The Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he says what? Here I am. Hey, down here. Send me. Send me. And despite the very real threat of suffering, the dreamer faithfully goes. Verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, Well, they've gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go down to Dothan. So Joseph went down after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So a couple of things to note here. First, look at the contrast between Joseph and his brothers. He is extremely faithful to his father's command. It's a discombobulating journey. Where in the world are they? Where in the world am I? And yet he's faithful to it. But them, they're not even where they're supposed to be. Dothan was in fact another whole day's journey from there. That's how far off course they are. And yet, God is still sovereignly working to make sure that his dream through Joseph will be fulfilled. Listen, in the middle of all this discombobulation here's this random person who just happens to know these brothers and where they went god's working verse 18 kiddos here's how joseph's brothers responded to his dreams you need that for your sheep they saw him from afar and before he came near to them they conspired against him to kill him they said to one another here comes this dreamer Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And then we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, 
That he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So what this is meant to do is to take us right back to the beginning of Genesis. When sin came into the world, after it severed the relationship between God and his children, what evil thing does it do next? It severs the relationships between the children. That's why Genesis 4 tells us that among the first two brothers, Cain and Abel, one kills the other. Why? Because Cain was angry over God's choice of Abel. You see, sin is always rebellion against God's dreams. And yet that callousness of heart expresses itself as being, quote, quick to shed blood, Romans 3.15. Now it might look like a society, and unfortunately even Christians sometimes, being unable to speak peaceably to one another. But deep down it flows from our murderous hearts. Listen, take away God's gracious restraint and the governing authorities that he institutes and we would all slaughter each other in no time. And that's why it's so easy for the brothers to decide to just murder the dreamer. You at least have Reuben and later Judah who have enough memory of Cain and Abel that they don't want to shed Joseph's blood. But they are missing the New Testament's words that if you hate your brother... You've already murdered him. Reuben says, like, don't do it. But that probably comes from self-protection because Reuben is already out of favor from having slept with his father's wife a few chapters back. (laughs) Y'all, the Bible doesn't hide this. These are God's people and they are evil. Look at this in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. Like how callous do you have to be? Plan to kill your brother, throw him in a pit, sit down to eat. Because it doesn't even flinch your conscience. And looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, And sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. See, Judah says, like, don't kill him. Because we won't make any money off that. Sell him. And we'll get the cost of a common slave. And we'll all have enough for a few beers on the way home. How's that sound, guys? 
Sounds like a great idea. And then they wait for traitors to pass by. Now, in the flow of the narrative, it feels like they just showed up. Oh, look, traitors right there. But who knows how long that that took and how long Joseph sat in that pit. And so then they themselves, not the traitors, drag Joseph out and sell him to his face. Like, how callous do you have to be? The author presents this scene as if Joseph is silent, like a, like a sheep led to the slaughter. But several chapters later, we are told this. Then the brothers said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. Joseph was not silent. Now, I don't often do this because it does go beyond the certainty of the text. But I will say that for most of the history of God's people, they didn't have movies like we do to help them feel a scene in the Bible. And so I think they used their imagination as they soaked in these stories and talked about them. So bear with me just a moment. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes just long enough to imagine the sickening pit in his stomach as he approached his brothers. The panic of being encircled and violently grasped. The helplessness and terror of being thrown into darkness. The wounds that would come from tumbling full weight against sand and stone. Knowing that you don't know what's at the bottom before you hit it. Hitting the bottom without bracing and without the cushion of water. Coming to yourself finally knowing that you have not died and wondering what's broken and what's bleeding. But you can't see. Am I going to die from my injuries? Thought goes through your head. Am I going to die from what's crawling down here? Thought goes through your head. Am I going to die from starvation as they leave me down here? And then, pulled up. This question. Are they going to let me go? Or does this mean they are going to kill me? Should I hope or should I despair? I need water. I need help. I need brothers. But what do I get? Slavery. And I don't know if you've ever read any historical or modern accounts of people being sold into slavery. But if I could describe those accounts 
in a word, it would be screams. Do you hear them? I believe that from the beginning to the end of this account, Joseph's screams became a trauma for all of them that only God's grace could heal. But that wasn't the end of the screams in this passage. The author continues in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Notice that they... uh, not only refuse to speak the truth, but they won't even speak of Joseph as their brother, but instead just say, your son. Like, how callous do you have to be? And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now, the brother's ears must bear another round of haunting screams. This time... From their father. Like what does it do to the human soul. To hear the screams of someone you love. Knowing that you are the cause of their pain. Like breaks your heart. Like moves you to confession. Like makes you want to change. No. Apart from a work of God's grace, a callous soul will only become more callous. Genesis says to us, this is humanity. This is what y'all do with God's dreams. This is what becomes of a dreamer. And so what do we do with this? As followers of Jesus who are committed to dream God's dreams, like, what do we do with this? Well, like, I almost pinned this application point instead as scream God's screams. But that would have taken too much explanation, so I decided against it. And yet the idea behind it was that if you're going to dream God's dreams, it's going to lead to screams. Listen, in other words, you will suffer for it. The powers of evil and the people still under their rule and sometimes even other Christians are going to hate you for it. Remember what we said earlier about desiring to live a godly life? This is what the Bible promises. This is what you get for doing that. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will have a great time, will be excited about everything in their life all the time. No, will be persecuted. This is a word that literally means to be chased, to be hunted. Life will not be easy for you. Even though no one may literally be trying to kill you, you will have days where you say, God, are you still even in this? Like, what did I do to make you mad? Okay? And if you recognize that you're being sent on a mission by your heavenly Father, and you say, here I am, send me. And you go despite the threat, you will suffer. So suffer God's sufferings. He is worth it. Listen, it was God's sovereign plan that put Joseph in that pit. And all the way back in Genesis 15, you know what God said to Abraham? Anybody remember this? We're going way back here to the very beginning. He says, Know for certain that your offspring will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and then I will bring them back to the promised land. Do you know when God says that to Abraham? When he puts Abraham into a dark and terrifying dream. God's speaking through dreams, and they are not always good dreams. And yet ultimately... God's working. Yes, Joseph was sinned against. And no, God did not approve of him being sinned against in this way. But it was all being worked for good. The worst thing was becoming the best thing. Easy to say in our shoes now. But listen, look at verse 36. Meanwhile, all that's going on with the brothers and their father... Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And that's how the narrative ends. Y'all, this is a far cry from being the ordinary field slave of that day. Joseph is already on his way to the top. And let me put it to you this way. Joseph was thrown into a pit in a place called Dothan. You remember that? Well, you know where else Dothan shows up in the Bible? In 2 Kings chapter 6. And there the prophet Elisha is completely surrounded by Syrian horses, chariots, and a great army. Let me read to you what happens. Elisha's servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I think that's probably a toned down version of what he (laughs) said as he peed his pants. To Elisha. And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Kind of cryptic, right? Oh, yeah, you're going through hard stuff, I know, but God's going to work it for good. He's doing something in this. It's like, okay, okay, I'll listen to you, Elisha. So then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, look, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Like we can't see, like I don't know if there's any artwork out there that exists, but if I can find it, like I'm going to hang it up all over the place. And if I can't find it hanging up all over the place, I'm going to create my own. It's not going to be good looking. 
but it'll work. And you know what it is? It's going to be pictures of very normal moments of life and surrounded by amazing works of God. Little old junky Antioch Church school building tucked off the road where people drive by don't even know we're here. You drive up and wonder, is God doing anything in this little space? And yet if your eyes were open to see, you'd see angels all around this place and God doing a mighty work. But we can't see that because it's supposed to be a process of faith and trust in a good God. Though we cannot see. Though we cannot see. And so listen, Joseph may have been down in that pit, sickened, panicked, broken, bleeding, and traumatized for life, but God. Oh, if he could see, the one who was for him was far more than those who were against him. And this is the grit that we have as we dream God's dreams, knowing we're going to suffer for it. Even what the enemy means for evil. What did we just sing? Come on. You turn it for our good. You turn it for our good. And even in the valley, you're working for our good. You're working for our good. For your glory. Mm. The pit is part of the process. Somebody write that down. You ain't been taking notes, but you need to take that home with you. The pit is part of the process. We might scream along the way, but ultimately we will rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Now, it's been over 20 years since my pastor said to me, I hope you have thick skin. Well, now I understand. The problem is, I don't have thick skin. (laughs) In my natural wiring and my own traumas, apart from the spirit, I am deeply emotional easily overwhelmed, relationally over-aware, and carry conflict like a sack of rocks. And so why in the world would God call a person like this into pastoral leadership, especially in this day and age? (laughs) It's kind of like, here I am, send me. And then, boom, (laughs) right in the pit. Yeah, you go out of the top, boom, back in the pit, you know. Maybe anybody else, maybe you've said yes to God's dream and then you find yourself looking up from the bottom of the pit asking yourself, God, are you even still in this at all? What did I do to make you mad at me? Why would he do this? He ruthlessly leaves us without any hope of a hero. But God, he's the hero. You see, the reality is when we read a story like today's, like we naturally put ourselves in the place of the hero, right? Like, what if I was Joseph? The preacher even told me, like, think about what if I was Joseph? Well, rather than Joseph, we are more accurately depicted by his brothers. 
Genesis and all the Old Testament builds in anticipation of the hero who would crush the head of the serpent. The dream restored. Evil removed. And then when he finally comes, this is our contribution to his work. We hate him and we kill him. Now you might say like, wait a minute, pastor. I'm not guilty of what people did long before me. But the truth of this is captured really well in the lines of this hymn that we sing very often. Behold, look at the man upon a cross. My sin, mine upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear something. And what is it? My mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. Crucify him. If the Spirit is working in your heart toward Jesus Christ to convict you of your sin, you know what he will make you to realize? That you crucified him that day as much as anybody else. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So here comes Jesus, the blameless and innocent Son of God, the one truly faithful and virtuous, knows the threat, and yet still he comes aspiring to live a godly life and to fill the world with God's glory. Y'all, he is the true dreamer that this sermon is named after. Already worthy of every sheaf gathering around and bowing down. The sun, moon, and stars fallen face down in light of him. But he comes as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Chosen and yet humble and winsome, speaking the truth in love. And how do we respond? Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Y'all, we sell him for the cost of a common slave. We don't want to shed his blood. And so we make the Romans do it. We nail him to a cross. And then we sit down and play games over his clothes. The Bible presents it as though Jesus was completely silent. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. And I think what that means is that he did not beg for his life. But that does not mean that in his humanity... He was silent. Do you know what the most agonizing way to die in the history of the world would lead to? In a word? Screams. Hear the trauma of the son. Hear the lament of the father. How callous do you have to be? What does it do to the human soul to hear the screams of someone who loves you? Does it break your heart? Does it move you to confession? Does it make you want to change? No. 
apart from a work of God's grace, a callous soul will only become more callous. This is humanity. This is what we do with God's dreams. And yet, it was God's sovereign plan that put him on that cross. It was sealed before the earth was created. The one who was for him was far more than all of us against him. When Jesus was in the bottom of that tomb, like he was already on his way to the top. The Father would take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for his good. He would raise him from the dead so that God's dream could be achieved again. So that you and me, by grace, through faith, could be restored to him. And so that through us we could participate in the dream again. That the world could be filled with his glory. Our God. Look at the cross. Look at the tomb. Our God takes the worst thing. He makes it the best thing. And so what does that mean for you today? You who follow this dreamer. It means that when his dreams for you leave you thrown into a pit, at the end of yourself, taking yet another kick in the pants, you can sing and believe the words of this new song that was written for the church in Ukraine. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. I don't know what you're doing. That's not up to, I don't need to know. I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he showed us how he fought and won. Took a loaf of bread after blessing it. He broke it. Gave it to his disciples. Said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it. Don't just look at it. Don't just think about it. Take it and put it in your body. Because it's for you. Gladly given. Likewise, he took a cup of wine. And after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. Said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing. You're announcing something. You're announcing that I've already won. You're declaring the Lord's death until he returns. That's what we're announcing today. That Jesus Christ has already won. And so have we. Maybe in a pit. Some of y'all in the pit this week. Some of you ain't going to get out of the pit because of this sermon. That's okay. You still already won. Our invitation here at Antioch is to come forward if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this congregation. Take the bread, dip it in the juice, remembering what Christ has done, proclaiming what he will do. There's going to be gluten-free available over here on the left, your right. If you're here and you don't know Christ, And he's revealed that to you in this space. 
that it was your hands that held the hammer, that drove the nails. And yet he looked at you and loved you anyways. Said, if you trust in me, today you be with me in paradise. I give you the victory. Would you turn to Christ? Would you turn away from your sins and respond to him in faith? Ask for his grace. He will gladly give it to you. Why would he who died for you withhold his grace from you when you call upon his name? When you dream his dreams instead of your own dreams? There'll be pastors in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, at the outset of this sermon, we ask you to surprise us with the riches of your matchless word and to fill us with a hunger to feast on it. And I know that you've answered that prayer for me. I just, my hope, Father, is that you answer that prayer for somebody else here today. I pray for those who are in the pit. But I pray for all of us because we all will be in the pit if we're following hard after you in a godly life, dreaming your dreams. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be a church who is marked by dreaming your dreams instead of our own. And therefore, when we are marked by suffering your sufferings, that we would be able to have the grace to rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name, to share in your sufferings, and so know you. Pray that you in this moment would help us to respond to whatever you've revealed in our hearts as we come and we declare your victory that is already won at this table. And I pray, Lord, for those who are in our midst who are refusing you and turning away from you with callous hearts, that you would break through that callous as only you can. And you bring them home to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.